Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, open up to uh, Proverbs chapter 9. It's on page 533 of the uh, Blackbound Pew Bible in front of you. Proverbs chapter 9. Anybody watching the World Cup this summer? That's probably not the most popular question to ask in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I realize. Soccer is not the most popular sport, uh, but football's not on right now. So if you're looking for something to watch, uh, turn on Fox this afternoon. And for the next month or so, uh, there will be international soccer games being played. It's one of my favorite uh, sports tournaments there is to watch. And uh, this year it's especially uh, important uh, for me because of where it's being hosted. Uh, if, you, if you've seen, uh, Moscow is one of the, the host sites uh, for the World Cup this year. The games are being played in Russia. And uh, many of you know that our uh, oldest son, Josiah, was adopted from Moscow. And so if you turn on Fox today and you see the buildings and monuments in the backdrop of their studio, uh, you'll see places that are quite familiar to me. You'll see Red Square and the Kremlin and St. Basil's Cathedral. And uh, they bring back a lot of good memories for, uh, for our family. Uh, but rather than telling you a story about our adoption, I want to tell you a story about food. Uh, everybody's going to be hungry come the end of the sermon today. So I want to go ahead and apologize for that. I realize many of you are here for Father's Day. You may have plans to go out to eat afterwards, and you will be ready. Uh, so let me go ahead and apologize for that. But I want to tell you a story about a man named Mahmoud. Mahmoud lives in Moscow, and he runs a sandwich shop. He has one job. His job is to make the most delicious sandwiches in all of Moscow. And Mahmoud is really good at his job. In 2010, Rebecca and I traveled twice to Moscow as part of the adoption process with Josiah. And on our first trip, we arrived early in the afternoon on Easter Sunday. Uh, we were thankful to be gre greeted by not only an English speaker, but a Christian at the airport who greeted us with the traditional uh, Russian Easter greeting. And by the time we got our bags and got back to the hotel, Rebecca and I just collapsed. I think we slept for three or four hours that afternoon, and it made jet lag all the worse for the rest of the week. Um, but we were in unfamiliar territory. Neither one of us speak Russian, uh, and as you'll learn by the end of the story, the little Russian I thought I had was not very helpful. And uh, so for dinner that night, we were, we were tired, we were exhausted from the plane ride, uh, we were nervous about the week, getting to meet our son for the first time. And so, like many of you probably do when you're in an unfamiliar place, when it comes to eating a meal, you want to eat something that you're prepared for. You don't want something outlandish, something uh, that will shock your system, but you want something familiar. And uh, in our case, not only did we want something familiar, we wanted something nearby because we don't know uh, Moscow very well, and we were too uh, cowardly to brave the public transportation system. And we also wanted to encounter people who spoke English so we could clearly communicate what we wanted to eat. And so our hotel was the perfect combination of all of those things. We were staying at a nice modern Marriott hotel in Moscow. All the staff that we encountered spoke English, and the hotel had a dining room. And so intending to save money, Rebecca and I go into the dining room, and uh, we look at the menu, and they have little personal-sized pizzas and water. So if you're going out to eat and you want to save on money in the States, pizza and water is about as, as cheap as it gets if you're going out to eat. Well, not so in Moscow. If you go to Moscow, let pizza and bottled water be the last thing that you order because $80 later, <laughs> Rebecca and I had spent almost our entire week's food budget in one meal. And so the next day, uh, we, we saved our leftovers thinking, well, we're going to have to eat pizza all week, apparently. And uh, thankfully, our room had a refrigerator. Unfortunately, it didn't have a microwave. Uh, so the pizza that wasn't fantastic to begin with was even less fantastic leftover and cold. And so on Monday morning, we choked down leftover pizza for all three meals. And after that, the thought of pizza was just unbearable. To this day, Rebecca's not a very big fan of pizza. And the things that we ate on that trip still turn our stomachs. Uh, Thankfully, we had packed some peanut butter crackers in our carry-on luggage, and that, combined with the fruit that was on display in the bowls at the welcome desk of the hotel, was our food for most of the rest of the week. To this day, we still don't know if that food was intended for public consumption, but it wasn't wax, so, so we ate it, and we ate it with thankful hearts. Um, so we get to Tuesday, and come Tuesday, after we had crackers for breakfast, we went on a guided tour of Moscow. We saw those familiar sights. 
that you might think of when you, when you think of Moscow. We, we walked on Red Square. We went through the Kremlin. We stood outside the uh, gloriously majestic St. Basil's Cathedral. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the whole world. But by the end of the day, after all that walking, the peanut butter crackers that we had for breakfast had long worn off, and we were famished. And so we're walking back near the hotel, and the most delectable smell hit me. Around the corner from our hotel was a food vendor. It was a small, humble shop, and the doors were wide open, and it was impossible to be nearby and not be drawn inside by the aroma. So I told our tour guide I was hungry. Uh, I, was, I was nervous that the language barrier would be a problem with the, uh, the proprietor of the shop, so I sent him inside to get me a couple sandwiches. Uh, they had a picture menu, so I didn't even care what it was. I just pointed to something that looked good and said, give me, give me two of those. And so he came out a few minutes later and brought me the most delicious chicken sandwiches I have ever had. Uh, in America, you might call them euros. Uh, if you've ever eaten at Glory Bound or Hooligans in Tuscaloosa, it's something similar to that. Uh, my dad served in, in the army for uh, much of my growing up. We were stationed in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, and there they have something called shawarmas. And so uh, if, you've, if you've heard of a euro or a shawarma, you can get an idea of what this was. Perfectly seasoned chicken on a flatbread with this just delicious sauce. And you add to the fact that I was so hungry, and you can imagine how satisfying it was. And even better, they were cheap, uh, which helped because our spending money had been depleted. Now, I'm a creature of habit, so you can imagine what I did on Wednesday when it came to be lunchtime. I went to, I went to go see my new friend. Unfortunately, we hadn't been introduced yet, and there were things about him I did not yet know. Um, so before going, uh, using the power of Google, I Googled the Russian word for chicken. And then I tried to master the pronunciation of that word using absolutely no knowledge of the Russian language. And I figured if I could say chicken in Russian and hold up the number two and point to a picture menu, then I would be able to get by. And so I confidently walked in, greeted by the familiar aroma that I had been introduced to the day before. My mouth was watering. I was so overjoyed to have found this source of manna in the wilderness. I strutted up to the counter. I held up two fingers. And I said what I thought was the Russian word for chicken. It was clear that I did not say the Russian word for chicken. Because the owner just made this kind of face at me. And so, got myself together, two, pointed to the picture, and I said it again. We do that when we're interacting with people that don't speak the same language as we do. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, it's like, if I say it louder or slower, it's going to correct the fact that I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I think Americans are especially guilty of this. And as you can imagine, it did not help things one bit. He made the same confused face. He had absolutely no idea what I wanted. And so at this point, I made a decision. See, a long time ago, I learned what noise a chicken makes. <laughs> and so I held out my chicken wings to the side, and I clucked like a chicken in that restaurant in Moscow. And I held up the number two, and I pointed to the sign. And I hoped that my little bit of humiliation would somehow cross the language barrier and lead me into the promised land. And at this point, the owner made a different face. He started laughing and loudly exclaimed in English, Oh, chicken! Why didn't you say so? So... The little skills that I learned from Old MacDonald had opened this door for me to discover that my new friend, like many people in Moscow are, are English speakers. He introduced him to himself to me as, a, as a, an Arab immigrant from Syria. We talked briefly. Uh, the, the people that, there were people present. I wasn't the only one there. Um, they observed that they thought it was interesting that an American had a taste for, for that food. Thankfully, they didn't give me a very hard time. All of these conversations at this point happened in English. Um, and so I, I thanked him for another day of, of delicious food that was affordable. And a month later, Rebecca and I traveled back, and I knew exactly where I was going. We stayed in the same hotel, and I said, as soon as we get there, I'm going to see Mahmoud. 
I took him a gospel tract in his heart language. He remembered me. We had another good conversation. And uh, to this day, I still remember my, my Syrian friend from Moscow. I think about him uh, even as the world has descended on Moscow. I hope, I hope he's doing well. But I learned on that trip the value of a good meal when you're hungry. And I learned what it means to be drawn in by the promise of delicacies that satisfy. And in the passage today in Proverbs 9, we're going to see that two people are inviting us in to partake of a meal that they have prepared. Their names are Wisdom and Folly. And we're going to see that one of them has delicacies to offer us that lead to life and satisfaction. And the other only has stolen bread and water. And they lead to death. So look with me in Proverbs chapter 9 as we consider wisdom and folly. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. At the outset today, I want to take some time to set Proverbs chapter 9 in the context of the book of Proverbs and really just wisdom literature in general in the Bible and what the Bible has to say about wisdom uh, more broadly. Um, I think Luke was in my head with uh, the, the preparation of the music today. Uh, even the, the scriptures that we read, the songs that we sang, tie directly into the things that we're talking about here in Proverbs 9. And so if you're looking in the book of Proverbs, many of us uh, probably treat Proverbs like kind of like a self-help manual. If I need wisdom for investing money, or speaking to my neighbor, or parenting my children, well, I can go to Proverbs, and I might find a helpful short little statement that will help me think about how to do those things wisely. When you think about Proverbs, you probably think about picking up around Proverbs 10 through the end, which contain those short, pithy statements, little nuggets of wisdom that help us think about our everyday lives. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are the prologue, and they contain a series of speeches encouraging us to seek wisdom and avoid folly or foolishness. And so when you think of Proverbs, you might think of something like Proverbs 22.6, which says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Those little truisms, those generally true statements in Proverbs are characteristic of what we think about in the book of Proverbs, but don't set aside the prologue to this book, which sets the stage for this call to biblical wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what uh, Proverbs 9 tells us is essentially uh, the beginning of wisdom and turning aside from folly. And so how does the Bible depict wisdom? Well, wisdom is depicted as this universal force or principle through which God created and sustains the world. And in Proverbs, uh, the author typically thinks in black and white terms about how we live and interact with the world and the consequences or rewards that follow from living that way. It deals with moral decision-making and helps us to think about how we live in line with the order that God has put into the world. It helps us think about things like relationships, work, money, parenting, the way we talk, having personal integrity, pride and humility, responding to correction, taking advice, making plans for the future, and a host of other things that are a part of our daily lives. If you look at the narrative of the Old Testament, 
Proverbs and the wisdom literature basically keep the worldview of the Old Testament, but set aside the narrative of what God is doing in the people of Israel and brings it to a very personal level for how we live and interact with God and the people around us in our everyday lives. And so Proverbs shows us a world where God sees, God knows, God is in control, and where God will hold us to account, and where we will deal with the consequences and reap the rewards from how we live wisely or foolishly. And wisdom is also an attribute of God. On Wednesday nights, uh, Pastor Michael spent some time recently considering the attributes of God. And wisdom is what we would call a communicable attribute of God. That is one that's personally accessible to people. God shares his wisdom with us. Not the fullness of his wisdom, but we are allowed to experience and grow in God's wisdom. It's something that he shares with us. Not all of God's attributes are communicable. Some of them are incommunicable, but wisdom is one that is accessible to people. And in Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a noble and godly woman who invites us into her home, invites us in to eat, and to learn her ways which lead to life. Proverbs deals with how we live in God's world in very practical ways. It's different from the other books of wisdom in its generally optimistic and simple outlook on life. To help us think about this, when we think about the books of wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, think about your life as if you were driving down the highway in your car. The wisdom of Proverbs would say things like, obey the speed limit, drive responsibly, and you'll get to your destination safely and on time. Ecclesiastes would take the more cynical approach and say, whether you drive safe or not, you're going to die either way. And sometimes you can drive safe and you can still get in a car accident and sometimes you can drive like a crazy person and never get caught. So basically driving is meaningless and just try to honor God. That's, that's, that's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the, the cynical outlook that, that sees things as vanity and meaningless but ultimately finds meaning in living a life that's honoring to God, recognizing that life isn't always so simple and sometimes things can be quite difficult. And then you have Job who looks at both of them and says, I was driving along minding my own business, doing everything I was supposed to do, and my entire family was killed in a car accident. And even worse, my three friends tried to convince me that it was my fault and that I should give up my driver's license because I'm a horrible driver. And I wrestled with my faith and with God in the midst of all that pain and suffering, and I came through the other side and I saw God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's trustworthiness. Maybe life isn't as simple as we want it to be, like Proverbs sometimes depicts this black and white world, things that are generally true but not always so. Those things can drive us into to cynicism, but the wisdom of Job tells us that while both of those perspectives are true, they ultimately both don't see the full picture of God's wisdom. So the last thing I want to say getting into Proverbs 9, is that when you're dealing with wisdom in the Bible, you need to see it as multifaceted. That it's generally true that if you train up your child in the way that they should go, when they're older, they won't depart from it. It's not a promise, but it's a generally true statement. Life will be difficult. Life will be full of pain and trials. But rather than embittering us, they can drive us back into the person of God. And so the wisdom literature in the Bible deal with the complexities of life in nuanced ways. And we should be pursuing and praying for the whole of God's counsel as we go. The last thing before we get into the text itself is to ultimately see that Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. So the path of wisdom, the invitation into wisdom's house, is ultimately an invitation or a command, rather, to repent and turn to Jesus and walk in his ways. Hopefully on the screen behind me you'll have the text of 1 Corinthians 1 verses 20 to 31. Hear how Paul deals with this extensively. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we, we come to Proverbs 9. It ends the prologue of the book of Proverbs. And if you flip back in your Bible to Proverbs 7 and 8, you'll see wisdom and folly each get a chapter where they call us in to their homes. Uh, wisdom appears as this transcendent, almost divine being. This attribute of God is personified in Proverbs. And she's calling us to walk in her ways, to walk in righteousness, and to live. And folly has a chapter, chapter 7, and under cover of darkness, folly appears to us as an adulteress seeking to entice young men into her home. Her path is one that leads to death. And so it would be helpful for you, I think, to see Proverbs 9 in its context, to go back and read the preceding two chapters. But here in chapter 9, each of them get a moment to invite us in. People are pictured as walking along a path, and we're getting dinner invitations from these two women. And so the first thing we want to see from verses 1 through 12, the first point for today, is that wisdom calls us to fear the Lord and to live righteously. Wisdom calls us to fear the Lord and live righteously. Wisdom is depicted as a noble woman who is methodically and painstakingly preparing a lavish feast for her guest. And she starts by building a house. And so it says she has built her house, she's hewn her seven pillars. These probably are meant to communicate the idea of completion, perfection, and grandiosity. Some might say it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Some of y'all got that. The next thing wisdom does is prepare the food. So she prepares uh, what is meant to be seen as these delicious meats, this uh, delicious and satisfying wine, and she sets her table. So it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms and a big, big table with lots and lots of food. And so what we're supposed to see in all of this is wisdom is thoughtful and careful and generous with what she's offering. This is a mansion where we're feasting, not a shanty where we're eating table scraps. In the words of Alan Ross, what wisdom is offering to us is teaching that is both palatable and profitable. And so then in verse 3, the dinner invitations go out. And it's interesting because wisdom doesn't send out the invitations herself. Wisdom's servants go out with the dinner invitations. And I think what may be happening here is God is showing us how he uses people to accomplish his purposes. Even in our kids' Sunday school lesson today, we talked about how God uses people for his glory and for our good. And so what I think is happening here is that God is showing how wisdom is disseminated by means of other people who have experienced these things in their own lives and are able to share that with others. This communicable attribute of God is made accessible to us, not just directly from God as we encounter him in his word, but God has fountains of wisdom in our lives that take the form of parents and grandparents, teachers and preachers. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And uh, Luke pointed out that today is Father's Day. That's actually one of the reasons that I'm in Proverbs today. In many ways, this book is a letter from a father to his own son, taking the wisdom that he had from God and making that available to his son so that he could honor the Lord and be successful in his own life. So as God uses parents to grow their own children in wisdom, wisdom sends out her servants to invite people to the feast. And so in verses 4 through 7, we get the invitation and a picture of what wise people who accept this invitation look like. Look at verse 4, the invitation to turn towards wisdom's house. She invites the simple and those lacking sense to partake of her food and wine, to repent of their ways, to walk in the way of insight, 
and to live. If you were to go back and look at Proverbs 8, it's clear when you consider the full scope of wisdom's portrayal that what we're called to in Proverbs is not just a shrewd knowledge of the way the world works so that we can do what is right and be rewarded and avoid what is evil, evil and not face the consequences. It's more than having street smarts in God's world. Wisdom will tell us things like working hard leads to prosperity, but she'll also tell us that how we go about earning and spending money matters in the sign of God. And we'll be held accountable to that. So in the Bible, it's impossible to separate wisdom from morality. Wisdom and morality always go together in the mind of God. Consider Proverbs 8, verses 6 through 8, where wisdom is speaking. She says, Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. So wisdom and righteousness always go together in the mind of God. And so at this point, I think a good working definition of wisdom, what it means to be wise or to possess wisdom, is helpful. And I like John Piper's simple definition. Wisdom is hearing and doing God's word. If you want to condense wisdom down, wisdom is hearing and doing God's word. Luke referenced Matthew 7 a few minutes ago, and uh, Anybody in here who is at VBS, you've probably got that song playing in your head now. I see Miss Lynn nodding. She knows. Jesus says that everyone who hears his words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. But the foolish person who builds their house on something other than the rock will find that when the trials and difficulties of life come, their house will go down with it. There's something of an interlude here in in verses 7 through 12. Wisdom is still speaking, but the invitation has been set aside for wisdom to give us a peek into the lives of two different kinds of people, the wise, righteous person and the scoffer. And we can use these verses to help diagnose whether or not we're on the path that leads to wisdom and life or on the path of folly that leads to sin and death. In verses 7 and 8, we meet the scoffer. The word indicates that the person is a mocker, they're scornful, and they're boastful. And it's precisely that attitude that the gospel undercuts in the passage that we looked at in 1 Corinthians. The gospel tells us that rather than possessing true wisdom, we're spiritually foolish before God. Rather than having the power in ourselves for our own salvation, the gospel tells us that we're weak and helpless. The gospel tells us that we might be right in our own eyes, but we have no righteousness before God of our own. And the worldly person, the scoffer, who rejects God's wisdom and God's power and God's righteousness is here before us in Proverbs 9. And the evidence for whether a person is a scoffer or wise interestingly comes with how that person responds to being corrected. Look at what the scoffer does. The scoffer lashes out at correction and injures those who would reprove him. And so the passage first calls us to do some introspection and see if we possess in ourselves the traits of the scoffer or that of the wise person. And so uh, a good question to ask ourselves is, how do I respond when someone corrects me? How do I respond when someone corrects me? And then on the flip side, how do I go about correcting others? What's the standard by which we provide and we receive correction? Well, Matthew 7 is also helpful here. Uh, In the coming weeks, as we get back into our Kingdom Come series, Pastor Michael will be dealing with this uh, passage in Matthew 7. And Jesus tells us that we're prone to see the specks in other people's eyes, but to miss the logs in our own. But what he doesn't conclude is that your fellow man doesn't need correction. Jesus' conclusion is that you both need correction. You both have something in your eye that needs to be removed. And so what you need to do is not fail to correct your brother, but repent of your own sin and then biblically and graciously assist your brother or your sister in the removal of what is in their eye. The truth is that we all need to be corrected. And how we respond to biblical correction is a litmus test for the path that we're on. So the scoffer responds to correction with abuse, with injury, and with lashing out because the scoffer is always right in their own eyes. It's impossible to correct someone who thinks that they're never wrong. But what about the wise person? 
Wisdom is still talking, and wisdom has some things to say about the kind of people who have come to dine with her. Rather than hating correction, wise people love correction, and moreover, they love the person who provides that correction. It doesn't mean that the correction is going to be enjoyable or pleasant. In fact, the removal of a log from your eye may be quite painful. But wise people know that it's better to experience the pain of the log removal in order that they might see clearly than to walk blindly towards destruction. So regardless of the pain it causes, a wise, a wise person will respond to correction with love. And there's more. If you keep looking at our passage, the wise person isn't content with the things that they've attained already. The wise person in verse 9 is growing in wisdom as they receive more instruction. So the wise people don't just eat appetizers at wisdom's feast and leave. Wise people stay for the whole meal. They constantly put themselves under wisdom's tutelage, seeking to increase in wisdom and in righteousness. And now we get to a climactic moment in this passage because there is a danger in reading Proverbs and thinking that all you really need to do is figure out how to get along in the world. I'll teach my kids to be good people. I'll manage my money wisely. I'll be careful about how I speak to other people. I'll make wise investments and avoid foolish ones. I'll try not to become too inflated with my own personality and ego. And I'll find as I go that as I do those things, life is more peaceable. I tend to be more prosperous. And I get along more or less in my relationships. And there is a danger in thinking that that's really what the wisdom literature is trying to produce in us. There's a subtle way that God himself could be removed from the equation and a person can conclude that once they have an understanding of the way the world works, and once they figure out how to get along peaceably in it, that they're living the good life. And we live in a world where lots of people are doing exactly that. The people that you meet in this world are often generally nice, generally respectful, generally pleasant, generally good, generally hardworking people, earning a living and supporting themselves, and their families. The American dream is actually founded on principles that Proverbs agrees with. America didn't invent the idea that hard work leads to prosperity. God built that into the fabric of the world in his wisdom. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That saying was in the form of a poster in my high school. It's not just a helpful way to think about getting along with people. It's how Jesus sums up the entirety of the Old Testament, which is concerned primarily not with people getting along, but with people worshiping God. Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness prove that biblical truths are useless and even harmful when God and his glory are removed from the equation. So lest we forget we're in a world created by God for his glory, wisdom tells us in verse 10, in what may be the most famous passage in all of the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The Bible quickly and frequently shatters the notion that you can simultaneously live well and disregard God. In fact, the fear of the Lord isn't just part of wisdom or one facet of wisdom that you might want to consider from time to time. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You haven't even set foot in wisdom's house without the fear and knowledge of the Lord. So how should we understand what it means to fear the Lord? This is uh, something I hear um, debated a lot, how to properly understand what it means to fear the Lord. When we teach children uh, about the fear of the Lord, uh, that word fear can sometimes create confusion and even fear. Uh, and so what is it when the Bible tells us that we should fear the Lord? I like Martin Luther's view of fear. He distinguishes between two kinds of fear servile fear and filial fear or the fear of a servant versus the fear of a son servile fear is the hate-based fear of an overbearing master that fears the consequences that come with their disobedience but filial fear is the love-based fear of a child whose fear is not of the consequences but on dishonoring their parents so servile fear is hate-based, and filial fear is love-based. The fear of the Lord, to put it in Luther's terms, is filial fear. 
a healthy awe and respect for God and His glory that delights in obedience because it brings joy and honor to God. The fear of the Lord recoils at sin, not because we fear God's judgment, but because we should be horrified at the thought of dishonoring God. Although the fear of the Lord does recognize the just punishment that our sin deserves, the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ drives out that fear. The fear of condemnation is gone for the children of God precisely because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection for sin. And so it's very possible in Matthew 11 that Jesus is picking up on some of the things that are coming out in Proverbs 9. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've typically understood this passage in Matthew 11 to be Jesus inviting us to forsake trying to work for our own salvation and to enjoy the freedom that comes with following him. Jesus satisfies the law's demands in his own life. He offers to us his perfect righteousness. We receive that by God's grace through faith. And we're not held accountable to the law because Jesus has fulfilled that for us. That's true, but I don't think that's what's going on here in Matthew 11. There is another work of Jewish antiquity that is not in our Bible, but we can assume from uh, the context here that Jesus was familiar with it. And when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, it's likely that what Jesus is doing is identifying himself with wisdom. Jesus is saying, I am wisdom, inviting you in to come and to live. He calls us to come not just to learn some things, but to come to him who graciously gives us life. And so the call of wisdom in the Bible is ultimately a call to discipleship, to repentance and faith in Jesus. And so in the Lord, we find one who, rather than abusing us like lowly servants, we find one who warmly embraces us as beloved children. So what is the promise in Proverbs for the pursuit of wisdom, which is actually a pursuit of the Lord himself? Or another way to ask it is, where does the fear of the Lord lead? And what does that produce? The answer is life. That's what Jesus promises to all who come to him in repentance and faith, forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And that's the promise of wisdom here in Proverbs 9. Leave your simple ways and live. Verse 12 concludes wisdom's appeal by telling us the results of wisdom and folly. We will ourselves reap the rewards for pursuing wisdom. In fact, wisdom is a reward unto itself. Likewise, we will bear the punishment for foolishly rejecting God's ways. And the rest of the book is full of examples of wisdom rewards and folly's consequences. Consider a passage like Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. That verse is emblematic of the book of Proverbs in showing us the general pattern of life as we walk in the way God intends or if we depart from it. So we've heard wisdom's call. Wisdom has clued us into what it looks like to be a wise person or to be a scoffer. And folly will have a chance to speak now. The chapter ends with folly's invitation. Folly is basically the foil to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So the point from verses 13 to 18 is that folly calls us to fleeting pleasures that end in death. Folly calls us to fleeting pleasures that end in death. Folly, much like the adulteress in Proverbs 7, is loud and seductive. And rather than staying under the cover of darkness like she did in chapter 7, now she's in broad daylight shouting her invitation from the rooftops. Proverbs says that she knows nothing. So the implication is not that she lacks knowledge, but she lacks moral direction grounded in the fear of God. The problem is not intellectual, it's moral. And rather than preparing her home in a lavish meal, she lazily sits at the door seeking to entice people to come inside for immoral and illicit purposes. One commentator says that wisdom invites us to school Folly invites us to bed. Interestingly, the call of folly is the same as the call of wisdom. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And so we live in a world where every day we are presented with things that are detestable in the sight of God, but that are presented to us as right. They come to us seeking to be dressed as wisdom, sounding like wisdom. And it takes wisdom to discern between the two. 
as we're going to see in a moment, wisdom shows us both sides. Folly only shows us one. Folly shields the view of the consequences of her folly and has nothing to say about wisdom. How tempting and easy it is to turn aside to folly when it has the appearance of wisdom. Consider what Paul has to say in Colossians 2, 20-23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Sometimes folly looks like religious people fooled into thinking that legalism is the cure for sinful desire. They're wrong, and it's not. Only the regenerating work of God and the Holy Spirit can accomplish those things, and God uses the gospel to accomplish that. So be on guard because folly takes many forms. It takes the form of the adulteress beckoning you into her home under cover of darkness or standing on the rooftops making the same invitation to come in and eat stolen bread and drink stolen water. Or it takes the form of self-made religion that tells us if we're good enough, God will love us and reward us. Folly entices us with empty promises, but blocks the view inside her home of the dead bodies piling up. Look at verse 17 to see the appeal that folly makes. Wisdom has prepared for us a lavish banquet, but all folly offers is stolen bread and water. Proverbs will call us to drink water from our own cistern in a passage that's dealing with adultery. So in the immediate context, it seems that here the author of Proverbs is telling us again to avoid the temptation to adultery. But more broadly, what's in view is anything opposed to the fear of the Lord and walking in His ways. In offering stolen food and water, folly capitalizes on the temptation that sinners have to conceal our wrongdoing and the pleasure that we get from the idea of getting away with it. Folly appeals to sinful desire and pleasure that is fleeting and deadly, while wisdom appeals to the heart and invites us to come and live. So consider a moment the difference between these two meals. It's clear in the context of the proverb which one is meant to be seen as preferable. I had to choose between cold leftover pizza and fresh delicious sandwiches. The choice was obvious, and the choice is meant to be obvious here in Proverbs 9. We should want the meat and the mixed wine of wisdom. It teaches us the good and right way of the Lord. We should despise the stolen bread and water of folly. It's a manner of life with no regard for God and His Word. But unfortunately, as we've seen, folly often dresses herself up like wisdom and uses cunning and seductive means to entice people. So we have to be on guard. Here at the end of Proverbs 9, the narrator takes over and shows us the dramatic irony of what is going on. So the picture here is like that 90s, early 2000s horror movie where the audience can see the bad guy. You see the good guys walking into the room and the bad guys hiding behind the door. And everybody knows it except for the good guy. That's what's going on here at the end of Proverbs 9. He does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And so they're walking into the bad guy's trap, unknowingly walking towards their own destruction. And so the person that rejects Christ is on a path that at least for a time may be full of pleasure. It may very well include material wealth and influence in society. It may include seemingly unlimited enjoyment in life. They may have achieved those things by living the kind of life that Proverbs depicts as wise. They're on the path because they like the path. In Matthew 7 that we referenced earlier, Jesus tells us that the gate to life, which is the same as the gate at wisdom's house, is narrow. The gate that leads to folly and death is wide and easy to get through, which is one reason it's so appealing. I want you to notice how wisdom is open and honest with us about the rewards of wisdom and also the consequences of folly. Wisdom shows us both sides. 
Wisdom will tell us this is what the wise life looks like, and these are the rewards for living the wise life. These are also what uh, a foolish life looks like and the consequences that come from that. Wisdom shows us both sides, but folly doesn't do that. Folly won't tell you the good that comes from wisdom, and folly stands in the way of seeing the death that she brings. And it's been this way since Adam and Eve walked in Eden. God was open and honest about the situation. He told them the rewards of their obedience and the consequences for their sin. Satan does the same thing that folly does. He shielded their view of death and disregarded the blessings of their obedience. And it still happens today. Biblical wisdom is always able to see both sides, but folly is always one-sided and short-sighted. So where does this leave us? We've already seen people in general as the simple ones walking along, hearing the competing calls from wisdom and folly. And now we know some ways that we can diagnose our own condition as we consider how we respond to biblical correction and ultimately how we respond to God himself in the person of Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian today, then I appeal to you to hear the call of wisdom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not foolishness. It's God's wisdom and power to save all who will believe in Jesus on account of his life, death, and resurrection for sins. Jesus lived the wise and righteous life to which we are called, but which we have failed to live. And in God's wisdom, he bore the penalty for sins and his death, and God raised him to life for our justification. Colossians 2 says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So only Jesus can open the door to wisdom for us. He himself is the door. Jesus is building a house called the church. He's preparing a banquet. Jesus is inviting people in. He calls us to turn away from folly, which only ends in death and hell. And he invites us to come today for abundant and eternal life. So if you're not a Christian, then you need to hear the call of wisdom in the gospel and repent and believe. And if you are a Christian, if you're in wisdom's house, Proverbs 9 has some application built in for you as well. The first thing is to continue pursuing God, his righteousness and his wisdom, like the wise person does in verse 9. The God-ordained means of doing this are in the counsel of his word, in prayer, and in the fellowship of the church. The wise person is teachable and increases in wisdom. So if wisdom is hearing and doing God's word, we should be praying for and pursuing just that. The Bible promises that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. The second thing we need to do is constantly check ourselves when it comes to being corrected and offering correction to others. We're going to respond as Christians to correction with gratitude and love and give correction with humility and grace after thorough self-examination. But there's other people in the proverb that we haven't spent much time talking about today, and those are the servants of wisdom. If you're a Christian and you're trying to find yourself in this story, then there's some people that you have to rule out automatically. We aren't wisdom incarnate. The Lord is. So we aren't wisdom. Clearly we can't be folly. We clearly can't live the life of a gullible simpleton because we've come to believe and follow the wisdom of God, and we're called to be growing in it. So we can't play the role of the simpleton. We certainly can't be the scoffer headed for death, because the path of wisdom leads to life. Christians actually find themselves in two of the characters in this story. We not only take the posture of the wise person by the grace of God, who walks into wisdom's house, receives wisdom's teaching, and increases in wisdom and righteousness... But we've also been made servants of wisdom. Christians have been commissioned to extend wisdom's invitation to the feast. Our lives are to be spent inviting people in to what we're already partaking of. We have the privilege not only of sitting at the table, but also the responsibility of calling people in to sit with us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, imploring people to be reconciled to God. Or as Proverbs 24.11 says, rescue those who are taking away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So I want us to take some time today to reflect on our own response to wisdom's call 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we're walking along the path and hearing the competing calls of wisdom and folly, are we constantly turning aside into wisdom's house in pursuit of wisdom and righteousness that lead to life by the grace of God? Or are we turning aside into folly's house for fleeting pleasures that only end in death and destruction? And by God's grace, if we're in wisdom's house, then are we inviting others to feast with us? Are we calling people to join us at wisdom's table, seeing that they will be invited in to the same worship and same life in Christ? Take some time to reflect on your own response to wisdom's call today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word is a great feast for the heart. Your word is good and true and satisfying. In your word, we have the words of life. We thank you for giving us your wisdom, not only in your word, your written word, but in the living word, your son, Jesus Christ, who is the full embodiment of wisdom, who calls us in to eat and to live. Forgive us, God, where we have walked the ways of folly. We thank you for the promise and the reconciliation that we have through Jesus, who died and rose again for our folly, for our sin. He lives to intercede for us. And so we thank you, God, in your wisdom that you have made known these things to us, that we might live a life that's glorifying and pleasing to you. Not only that we would know how to live in this world and get along with one another, but that we would know you and ourselves before you to constantly be called back to repentance and walking in wisdom's ways. All of these things are gifts of your grace to us, God. So we thank you and praise you for your wisdom that leads to life. Help us, God, to resist the temptations of folly that lead to death. We know that you're good, you're trustworthy, that no temptation will overtake us beyond what we can bear. You will always be faithful to provide a way out and point us in the direction of wisdom's house. So God, raise our heads and raise our eyes to look in that direction, to look towards wisdom, to look towards your word, to find help in prayer, to find support and accountability in your church. God grant that these things be so. In Jesus' name, amen.